This morning I thought I would say a few words from the opening chapter of the Song of Solomon. That's chapter 1 and just the first few verses. So Mahatma Gandhi has famously said, be the change you want to see in the world. And it applies to aspects of our lives and is a message from the Bible too. It's a lesson in relationships and in marriage particularly. So let us look at the first few, chap first few verses of the Song of Songs this morning. This wonderful book. It's the song of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. It's a beautiful love song between Jesus and his future wife. Maybe the only love song we should know by heart. So we want to ask this morning, what qualities should we have to attract the perfect marriage partner? And of course, we're talking about Jesus. So in the Song of Solomon's chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3, we read this. I long for your lips to kiss me. Your love makes me happier than wine does. The lotion you have on pleases me. Your name is like perfume that is poured out. No wonder the young women love you. So what's the first thing that the Shulamite woman is attracted to? And the answer is, of course, his godly character, not his physical body or appearance. The lotion you have on pleases me. Your name is like perfume poured out. Your name. In these days of power showers and body lotion, aftershave and perfume, we get the wrong idea about this verse. She isn't saying that he's bought expensive perfume, Chanel Number no. 5 or Jean-Paul Gaultier. He's anointed himself with costly, scented, purified oil. That oil that we should all anoint ourselves with. He has bought godly characteristics through the application of God's truthful teaching in his life. He has been exercised and the character he has has cost him effort. His prayers, like incense, have risen to God, the scent of a humble man that knows that his plans fall under God's. A man who knows everything is from God, a man who leans not on his own understanding, a man in a of a few words who prays continually and who is in constant communication with God, constant contact with God through his daily life and bringing everyone around him into constant contact with God. His body and his strength, his mind and his life are renewed each day by that oil of the word of God that passes through him as his faith burns brightly for all to see. That oil, like the oil that passes continuously through the wick of a lamp or like wax passing through the wick of a candle, cleanses and purifies him as his faith burns to warm and light those around him. So here truly is a man of godly character and integrity, and it showed in his actions and his knowledge and love and relationship with God was so clearly evident in his daily life. It wasn't his position in society, 
nor his gravitas or his clothes, not his rank in the church, not his reputation, nothing outward. Reputation is just what others think you are. It's something outward, and we're far too used to judging by that. But this man had character. The qualities that attracted her was what he truly was, a man of God who sought God first. No wonder all the women love you. And if you want a godly marriage one day, we have to live a godly marriage today. We have to pursue God. It's so easy to judge on the outward appearance, whereas we must become the person we are looking for. Whether we are already married or whether we're looking, we must pursue Jesus, pursue the kingdom, and everything else will be added to us. We read in verse 4, King Solomon, you fill us with joy, you make us happy. We praise your love more than we praise wine. The marriage between us and our husband is one of growth, deepening intimacy, trust, respect and peace. It is not good for man to be alone. As we read in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10 and 11, Who can find a wife of noble character? For her value is far more than rubies. The heart of her husband has confidence in her, and he has no lack of gain. There are many who profess to be Christian, but don't have his character. Unless Christ gets a hold of our hearts, we will all remain in the dark, even though we think we are something. And Paul remarks on this when he's talking about these type of Christians. He says, oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare to say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they're only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. So therefore, the first element that attracted the Shulamite woman was his godly character. And let's move on to the second quality that we are looking to become in order to attract our husband. That's growing trust. So reading on in verses 5 and 6. Women of Jerusalem, my skin is dark but lovely. It is dark like the tents in Kedar. It's like the curtains of Solomon's tent. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has made my skin look like this. My brothers were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I haven't even taken care of my own vineyard. So here we see that she is embarrassed and insecure about her appearance. In our culture, again, it's different. Being bronzed is a sign of wealth. It's a good thing because maybe you've been on holiday because maybe you're not going to get a suntan in the UK. You have to go away somewhere, especially if you're brown in wintertime. We value olive brown skin here today. But if you visit Vietnam, you find that in the 35 degrees Celsius heat, all the girls on motorbikes are covered up in coats and they have huge hoods that come right over their crash helmets and they wear sunglasses that completely cover their face. 
They wear gloves and they zip up their coats up past their chins and they weave their way through the hot traffic in the heat of the day. Because if they go brown, it's seen as very unattractive because they must be poor. They must be working in the fields. They're of farming stock, not marriage material. The Shulamite woman we see here is opening up about her insecurities. So how do you engender trust if you want trust to grow in your relationship? Well, you show vulnerability. Confessing our weak points to each other, confessing our sins, saying when we're hurt. In other words, giving power away to the other person and being honest with ourselves and with them despite the risk encourages the other person to treat us with kindness. We are not a threat to them. Whereas lying and covering up our vulnerabilities is a selfish sign of mistrust. It disrespects the person you have a relationship with. You're telling them that we don't trust them to respond with understanding. Because we may be right. But when we trust, when we give away power to somebody else, we engender trust. So what do we do as we go through our Christian life? We slowly find people who we walk with on the way to the kingdom, who we can reveal our insecurities to, who we can confess our sins to, who we can be honest with without judgment. And of course, we confess to God through Jesus in prayer and we slowly open up and we become more honest with ourselves. And of course, we watch for the re response, don't we? Because it's a painful process. And I don't know about you, but I can say I've been very blessed to have met brothers and sisters that I have been able to truly open up to about my vulnerabilities, my physical, but also spiritually, uh, spiritual vulnerabilities. And telling others that you respect your brothers and sisters, what your failures are, does show vulnerability. Because we all are trying to live up to the same standard and you're admitting that you've fallen short of that. And that would allow them to judge you. But because it shows vulnerability, it allows them to tell you about their faults. And you realise at the same time that these wonderful Christ-like people that you look up to sometimes fail too. Both parties carry on respecting each other because we are to esteem each other greater than ourselves. But now we have a more positive outlook. We're in this together. We trust each other and we work side by side. It can sometimes be a traumatic thing to work for our brothers and sisters like this Shulamite woman was doing. Our brothers and sisters can at times fail to be all they can be. Sometimes they're angry or uncompromising or insensitive. And like the Shulamite women, we can suffer discomfort or insecurity because we work the spiritual vineyard for our brothers and sisters. We may end up feeling insecure about ourselves or left out or not worth anything, worth less. And all that because of our care or dedication. There can be misunderstanding and mistrust in our fellowship. But we keep the commitment to come along every Sunday to be near those who can sometimes hurt us. She worked the vineyard for her angry brothers.
despite the cost to herself. And as I sat in the garden writing this talk, I noticed the snails there. And I thought about their eyes. They're so delicate, aren't they? And the way they slowly unfurl after a threat has passed. And I'm sure we've all felt that way emotionally or spiritually. We've been hurt and we've recoiled. And it takes a long time for us to be willing to be vulnerable again. But I was thinking as well, did you know that a snail has light-sensitive patches and cells all over its body? And that's because they're so vulnerable that they must react extremely quickly to threats. So they have what's called the shadow reflex. They recoil even at shadows. And so I was looking around me and I noticed 15 snails there and two slugs within arm's reach. And what that said to me is these terribly vulnerable creatures are extremely successful. And how can something that's so vulnerable be so successful? And of course the answer is it was made by God, just as we are. They are fulfilling a role in the animal kingdom, just as we are fulfilling a spiritual role among ourselves and in the world. And we must trust God knows best. We know that all things work for our good if we love him. And knowing this and having, as it were, a shadow reflex of scripture wisdom to protect us from things far away, we can react quickly to threats and still remain vulnerable and open and engender trust with each other. But wait, we read this next. King Solomon, I love you. So tell me where you take care of your flock. Tell me where you rest your sheep at noon. Where is he? This is another one of her insecurities, is it not? Where are you, the one that I love? The absence of the man that she loves. And we know that many men can be present in the room, but absent in spirit. For us, we know that Jesus has been gone a long time. Where is he? Before he comes, we are counselled in this chapter to follow the tracks of the sheep. Let us not become despondent or wander off or worse yet, follow the goats or the wolves in sheep's clothing. But let us follow the path that the true believers have walked before us and we will all together find the shepherd. So what is Solomon's response to her insecurity? Well, we read about it in that chapter. You are my love. You are like a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your earrings make your cheeks even more beautiful. Your strings of jewels make your neck even more lovely. We will make gold earrings for you. We'll decorate them with silver. The answer is Solomon loves her insecurities away. You are the most beautiful of women and you're like a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't travel through time comparing a lady to a, a, a horse. <laughs> Perhaps wouldn't work today, but dig a little deeper. Pharaoh's chariot horses were considered to be extremely pure spirits. They were considered actually to be deities in their own right. 
and she was the beautiful, white, shining, spotless woman among all of the others. You're the beautiful one that stands out, the one that all men desire, the one that I desire. You're causing a stir and I only have eyes for you. And this is a very safe place for this woman. There is no one else. You are the only one. And he is making it clear that he is meant for her and she is meant for him. That's safety. And don't we all feel it, brothers and sisters? Christ died for us to make it happen. Vulnerability promotes trust and encourages love. And love casts out fear. And without fear, we can love more. And this increases our relationship and our togetherness with each other and with our future husband. And the third ingredient that attracted him or attracted her to him was one of consistent encouragement. It was pointed out to me once when I was moaning about how badly I thought the young people have it sometimes in our community. We should have done this or that for them, or we must do such and such. That I was talking down my elders and being quite negative, that I wasn't displaying the right attitude of non-judgmental respect. And at the time I felt justified because I felt that the elders in our fellowship should know better. But the reply came back straight away that the Apostle Paul had a great deal of trouble and difficulty with the early church, but he always tempered his criticism with encouragement, and the truth hurt. But in the criticism I received, I also got an education, and I was encouraged to go and read through Paul's writings to get a sense of his manner when trying to encourage and upbuild the early Christians, despite their failings and his sadness, disappointment and frustration. Judgment of others is like sticky mud that slows you down and picks up more mud and makes it hard to walk even if you're on the right path. And truly, it's been said, with what measure we use against others, that measure we will experience ourselves. But when we are justified by Jesus and are invited into the kingdom, the marriage between Christ and his bride will be like the marriage of Adam and Eve before the fall, in two amazing ways. The man and the woman will both be naked and unashamed. We read in the second of Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all stand in front of Christ to be judged. Each one of us will be judged for what we do while in our bodies. We'll be judged for the good things and the bad things. Then each of us will receive what we are supposed to get. We know what it means to have respect for the Lord, so we try to help other people to understand it. What we are is plain to God. I hope it is also plain to your way of thinking, says Paul. Everything was shattered after the fall, but it will be put back together, and we will be united in newness of life, and we will know even as we are known. And the second aspect of our marriage to Christ will be that there will be no baggage in our relationship. Adam and Eve didn't have 
pasts. They were made for each other. And there was no obstacle standing in the way for them to be to know that. And of course, we know that in the future, the former things will not be remembered. So let's drop every piece of baggage and sin that holds us back from running the race now, while it's cool today, and instead be consistently positive and encouraging, and ask ourselves, how can I be the change I want to see in other people? Imagine this, Jesus has smiled at you and you are now in the kingdom. And looking around at the great company of witnesses that wrestled and struggled in their lives to overcome, to drag their crosses with them, you're in a state of unbelievable and inexpressible joy. And you can't shake off the feeling that this was what you were always made to be. When you slowly begin to make out faces and you notice a brother or sister that once wronged you. I'm not saying that we will remember the former things, but just now in your mind's eye. Do you think for one moment you will have anything bad to say or think to that brother or sister? Wouldn't you rather instead, in that instant, realise what forgiveness meant, what justice means, what mercy means, and how great the righteousness of Christ is, and how you could in that moment, how could you in that moment reserve any judgment for that one that Christ has redeemed? Instead, you would beat your chest and say, I was the sinner for judging my brother or sister. And Christ is my righteousness, our righteousness. His grace is sufficient. Perhaps then the barrier to the kingdom is what we refuse to let go of the burdens we carry, what we refuse to leave behind. A verse struck me yesterday in Deuteronomy 24, and it's verse 5. Suppose a man has just married his wife. Then don't send him into battle. Don't give him any other duty either. He's free to stay home for one year. He needs time to make his new wife happy. And I hope I'm not labouring that verse or making too much of it. But after the marriage of the lamb to his bride, one can only wonder at how these words might apply. He needs time to make his new wife happy. But one thing we do know, he will make his new wife happy, won't he? We imagine a renewed earth. No disease, no tears, no mourning, no war. No pollution, a lack of evil thoughts inside yourself. And all this against the backdrop of strength and wisdom, justice and power, and teaching an enthusiastic population to honour God. That's, to me, the definition of happiness. Marriage is the taking of two people that are not quite whole and joining them together to become one and of the giving of his name to her. There may be a history of pain and hurt in one or both people. Certainly there is a sense in which both people are not quite whole. They're a little bit broken, a little bit in pieces. They can complete each other by working together to plough that straight line together and produce a crop on the earth. Jesus 
endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, the joy that was on offer, how joyful will be the marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the one he has made spotless with his blood. His body was broken that we might be healed, so that we might complete his work by joining with him in marriage to glorify the Father. So let us set aside some time to reread just those few verses of the Song of Solomon this week and ask ourselves, are we growing fruit? Are we changing degree by degree? Are we allowing God to work with us? Are we truly appreciating that the hardships and difficulties in our lives are there because God wants them to be there? And of course, if we pray, he may work with us anyway, and he may take them away. But nonetheless, we know that the foreknowledge of God has allowed for these things to happen. Are we attractive to Jesus? Ask ourselves, am I a living stone? Am I making up that temple where God himself will dwell? Am I everything I desire? Do I have his character? Am I known for my integrity, my commitment to a godly life, my spiritual leadership, my godly speech and way of life? And do I apply myself to prayer, reading with understanding and then applying in love what I read? Am I growing in trust for God? And are my brothers and sisters able to grow in trust for me the more they get to know me. And let's ask ourselves, do I have an attitude of consistent encouragement? It's extremely hard, that one. We have so much to live up to, so much to, to grow into, so far to rise. And yet we must somehow encourage others while we ourselves are finding the way hard. And we remember, don't we, that Jesus wanted to be alone. He was at his wit's end. And God instead brought him, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of people to refocus him away from himself. Again then, let's leave behind now what we cannot take with us into the kingdom. The marriage supper of the Lamb will involve the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the city referred to by John as the wife of the Lamb, it's a city made up of living stones, the covenant people of God joined to the chief cornerstone of Zion, our husband. So as we remember our future husband in the bread and wine, now here on this table, we'd like to just recall these words from the first of Peter 2, verse 4 to 7. Christ is the living stone. People did not accept him, but God chose him. God places the highest value on him. You also are like living stones. As you come to Christ, you are being built into a house for worship. There you will be holy priests. You will offer spiritual sacrifices. God will accept them because of what Jesus has done. <laughs>